Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Hunter, an anonymous financial writer like yours truly, who writes the Lewis Enterprises Substack. By day, he is an investment professional who focuses on real assets, private equity, and other alternative investments. He's very active on Twitter under the handle at rhunterh. Welcome to the podcast, Hunter. Thank you for having me. So how'd you first get interested in finance and investing? I think my story there is pretty common. You hear it a lot of seeing the newspaper around for people that remember physical newspapers having that page that had all of the stock quotes in them. And neither of my parents are in finance, but I remember asking about it. And like a lot of kids that sort of take to it naturally, I remember sitting there going through, wondering what the companies did. I was born in 1988, so I'm kind of that sort of like older millennial or sort of right at the peak. So if you remember back in the early aughts, emissions really started dropping and Scott Trade came around. I believe at the time, a trade on Scott Trade was $7. My parents have set me up an account and really embarrassed me. I can't believe that this company still exists. The first stock I bought was Build-A-Bear Workshop because they had just opened in the mall near me. I saw that it was crowded absolutely every day. Peter Lynch style. Peter Lynch style. It was very much, yeah, that kind of thesis. So I built a bear workshop. I think they've been a prolific destroyer of capital. If I look at the stock chart, I'm shocked they're still publicly traded and still around. But that was the first stock I bought. And you know, I didn't know any accounting. I didn't do any deep work on it, but that was my introduction. And then a lot of people I read started reading Graham and Buffett, Intelligent Investor, and went to college with the plan of, of doing something in investing. And when I got out, I got hired by an RIA that was relatively forward-thinking around alternatives, and I got put on doing alternative investment analysis, which at the time was pretty limited for what you might call a high net worth or private wealth channel. It was a lot of non-traded REITs. It was oil and gas partnerships. It was these really fee-heavy structures. But it was good training because it was really forced to get into the documents, understand what was going on, and understand incentive alignment, principal agent problems, and things like that. So I still say that experience of those early days of alternative started moving out of purely the institutional world, learned where the bodies were buried, that experience certainly still shapes my professional life and how I view investing today is mostly a very big principal agent problem between savers and borrowers or users of capital and savers of capital. Gotcha. I realize you can't get very specific, but I know your current role deals with alternatives. So do you want to tell us a little bit about your current role and how you are approaching things? I came into the industry right after the GFC. And one of the things that was in vogue then and I think still has some currency today and maybe even some growing currency was the David Swinson Yale model, the endowment style portfolio of one, a focus primarily on asset allocation and two, thinking more broadly about that asset allocation beyond just stocks and bonds into the alternatives and the real economy, so to speak. Back my first boss, the first book he gave me was pioneering portfolio management. And I think it had a really big impact on me. One, in terms of thinking, again, beyond the traditional asset classes, but Secondly, in terms of thinking about 
investing over much longer durations. The role I'm in now is with an RIA, but our family wealth size is larger, what I would consider larger. I mean, it's a giant spectrum, but families that have 50 to $60 million or 20 to $50 million net worth, where they're not really planning for retirement, so to speak. This money is never really going to enter a drawdown. It becomes more about legacy and a more perpetual capital. And that certainly changes the investment calculus and around liquidity, this growing role of alternatives to diversify away from purely liquid instruments. And I think we can get into that divide and how real or meaningful that divide is between when and illiquid or public and private investments. But the role now is figuring out ways for that cohort to have their portfolios look more institutional. But I think the market, if you saw my most recent thing, is still very nascent. I don't think anyone's figured out the perfect mousetrap for recreating those endowment-like results in individual or family portfolios. That makes a lot of sense. So you talked about liquidity versus illiquidity. So do you think that there's debate about whether or not there's an illiquidity premium? What do you think about that argument? There's sort of academic understanding of an illiquidity premium, which I think has some merit. And then there's sort of the cliff assness critique that this is just simply volatility laundering by not having a daily mark. I think you have to consider is that the growth of private assets has grown so much, and this is both in terms of private equity, private real estate, and even venture capital, that the public markets have been deprived some of the best growth companies via later and later rounds of venture capital. Public markets have been deprived of some of the best, what you might call value companies via this growing LBO market. And the public markets have been deprived of quality real estate portfolios as the Blackstones and Brookfields of the world have grown their private books. So if we're thinking about capturing some sort of factor exposure or capturing some sort of economic factor, at some point wonder if you have to have private exposure to be capturing, let's say, equity risk premium. Can you truly capture equity risk premium? without private equity allocation? Can you truly capture a small value factor without having private equity exposure because so many of those companies simply aren't available in the public markets anymore, or those assets broadly aren't available in the public markets anymore? Gotcha. Yeah, there's two important sides of that argument. So with alternatives, you've written about how asset managers that are looking for growth are turning more and more towards alternatives. Do you think that's a smart approach? Do you think that Maybe they're being seduced by past performance that won't necessarily be replicated in the future. Don't think asset managers, and this is going to sound more cynical than maybe it should. I don't think asset managers are particularly concerned with performance. <laughs> Alternatives, that's fair. For the time being, <laughs> offer greenfield markets in terms of potentially being available to outright retail, but certainly into the private wealth and high net worth channel, which also has its own growth tailwind. Alternatives themselves are running up against a growth issue. All of the major alternatives managers went public sometime during the last cycle. And once you're public, growth becomes this all-important KPI. But institutional assets really aren't growing that much. Most companies don't have pensions now. Endowments are large. But they've captured essentially all of that pie that's capturable. If you look at what a Texas teacher's own, they're in every Blackstone fund. They're in every Apollo fund. They're in every Brookfield fund. So the growth in that market's tapped out. I think it was natural for the all-asset managers to start looking downstream to continue the growth they had. And then for traditional asset managers, BlackRock's and probably not Vanguard, but sort of the large public or listed asset managers, they're facing ongoing fee compression and 
So alternatives don't just offer a new path for growth. They offer potentially a higher margin product. And there's a Boston Consulting Group for it out now, and I don't necessarily agree with all of their sort of end state predictions, but the growth in alternative asset AUM and its contribution to asset manager profitability probably will continue to grow for at least the next five to seven years. But I think there's a giant question about what that what the end state of that market looks like or how and if it permanently changes the way everyday Americans invest their money in the same way that passive has has transformed how people plan their financial futures. I, I'm not sure if we know exactly where alternatives or private assets are going to fit in that landscape in the final tally. Gotcha. Yeah. And do you think that the expansion of alternatives will hurt the quality of the actual product that's being delivered to investors? Well, the capital cycle spares no one is something I've been saying a lot recently. And anytime you have an asset class or a strategy experience rapid growth in the assets or in the dollars looking for those assets, it is bound to have a negative impact on returns. That said, I do think these are giant markets and I think there will be all asset managers that get increasingly niche and increasingly focus on more inefficient markets and finding more inefficient markets. So just like any investing, I think there will be a bell curve of outcomes and there'll be some alternatives that that do very well and some that are kind of middling and some are very bad. And the trick as always will be where to allocate capital and there will be people that are good and bad at it, but I think it'll take on the, the dynamics of most markets. Yes, assets coming in will depress returns at the mean, but that the tails will be the tails. And among the kind of the menu of alternative investments that are out there, what do you think, which one offers the best future prospects for growth and for alpha because it's not as picked over? <laughs> I think that's certainly the million dollar question. And finding more inefficient markets, wherever they may be, I think smaller cap private equity probably still has a lot of room to run. I think various infrastructure and real asset plays are another area where the public markets have just not traditionally been a good home for those. And I think a lot of my time is spent on real estate, which has obviously been through a very long cycle. And I think going through some transition now into something, but just the pure size of that asset class should offer greater opportunities for generating returns than some of these that are more bound by size, just, just by their very nature. You've seen a giant push into things like credit and yield replacement. And I don't think that those things are necessarily going to do poorly, but I'd also think that we don't know exactly where they fit in people's portfolios or where they fit in an institutional portfolio from an asset allocation standpoint. Again, coming back to that early training with Swenson and the Yale model, if asset allocation is the most important determinant of returns, I don't know that we have the data or know exactly yet how this segment of the portfolio needs to be sized and what those sleeves truly need to look like to capture what you're trying to capture with allocating to alternatives. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's a good opportunity. Let's talk about Swenson model. So, I mean, before Swenson, most institutions were investing in some combination of U.S. stocks and U.S. bonds. He introduced all of these alternatives and uh, created a really robust model. So where do you think about that model and where it's going? Because I think we're at a point where everybody has tried to copy it. They can't necessarily replicate the results that he produced back in the 80s and 90s. So where do you see that today? Where do you think it's going? 
Yeah, I think there's a, maybe a misunderstanding or a misattribution of Swinton's ideas as a full-throated endorsement of alternative assets, which it was to some degree. Swinton really nailed was the process and the structure for investment decision-making. So I think that's one of the reasons people have failed is they focused on perhaps they thought that Swinton was maybe more prescriptive than he really was. And really the genius there was setting up investment committees and setting up investment teams to thrive in really any environment and really any asset allocation. I do remember there was maybe six months ago, Jason Zweig did this article. You can't do it like Yale, so don't try to copy <laughs> the Yale model, which perhaps has some merit in terms of these are long duration you're setting aside of your portfolio to take on much longer duration risk. And depending on your, just like any investment, it really comes down to the investor's own disposition. And if you're not dispositionally suited for taking those types of long duration bets, I think it's going to be very hard to perform well. One of my favorite stories, and I'm, I'm working on sort of writing an update to it now, was in 2018, there were these mystery LLCs that were paying well above market for vineyards in California. And it was causing a big stir locally. Like he was paying 30, 40% over market for a sort of marginal vineyard land in California. And it turns out it was the Harvard Endowment. And it turns out that they were buying land that just happened to sit over aquifers. And so we're talking about an endowment that's making a really long 20, 50, maybe even 100 year wager on a certain outcome. And I think that's just a very different way than most people think about investing day to day in terms of how is the stock going to react to tomorrow's economic prints or how is the next quarter going to look or what does our three-year DCF look like? And then when you move into an endowment model or an endowment way of thinking, more permanent capital way of thinking, you're thinking about much longer timescales and not all investment ideas scale up to that long view. Yeah, absolutely. Most people don't have a 100-year time horizon. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about investment committees and asset allocations. So you've written a little bit about how to build effective investment committees. You talked about how Swenson was able to do that. I've always thought of it as something that's more productive, like too many cooks spoil the soup. So you want to talk a little bit about that and how to do it correctly? Sure. Well, one, I should disclose that the investment committee project was really just a great excuse to, it's a little bit like having a podcast. The Investment Committee Project was a great excuse to have people talk to me because I think like you, a lot of people have a visceral reaction to investment committees, especially if they've worked on them professionally or worked in investment teams that have them. So it was a great reason to reach out to all these investors and say, hey, are you willing to talk to me about your investment committee? And since I did that post, I probably had eight or 10 interviews. And while I haven't even really begun to metabolize all of the output from those interviews, a few things are really starting to reveal themselves as important structures. And one, which I've already hit on, is know the proclivities of your team or know your own biases and try to set up a process that you know, plays to strength and tries to, to dampen weaknesses as most as possible. Another thing I've learned is that language is really important. What you call an investment committee, how you structure it right down to sort of the agenda headings really help frame the conversation in a different way. I remember in one of the interviews, I said, well, do you feel like when things come to an investment committee, it's a predetermined outcome because the idea has been politicked internally so much? And the person I was interviewing pointed out that there's a big difference between pre-selling and politicking. There's a big difference between building sort of institutional conviction around an idea before it gets to investment committee and then versus sort of lobbying 
for your idea to be implemented. And so there's a lot of little things like that that I think seem like minor tweaks, but that hopefully in some total help give people better or best practices for organizing this structure. A lot of investment committees are just purely governance layer, CYA last checkmark, but I do think that they can be a more valuable part of a process, again, in terms of building conviction. And I think most importantly, and this is probably what this process lacks now, and I can say as a personal experience well, is that investment committees don't always build institutional knowledge. Something comes through the underwriting or the analysis process, and then for whatever reason, it gets killed. If the investment doesn't get implemented or a strategy doesn't get implemented, very rarely is there an easy way to reach back into that process and say, well, we've done this before. We've looked at this before. We have learnings that we passed on. How did that turn out? And so I think if you can reshape investment committee processes less around this binary outcome, are we in, are we out, and shape them more about, hey, we're building some institutional knowledge that we're going to be able to tap into and that's going to compound as part of our process ongoing, then it can be a much more positive experience, not for just the people working in it, but for investment returns. So talking about biases, I thought that was interesting. You talked about those. What are some of the common biases that kind of trip things up? Well, I can speak from my experience where I'm usually pitching real estate deals or real estate sponsors or real estate themes to an investment committee. And would say any of these, we're talking about any investment is cash flows in this idea of a security. And you run these things through analysis that you try to get into some sort of risk reward framework. Then it gets to in front of people and people have all sorts of biases they bring to that. Well, I, I lived near a railroad once and it's never good to own real estate near a railroad. It's loud or something. You know, there's all sorts of things that come in that aren't necessarily data-driven, but they're just from people's own backgrounds or experiences that aren't necessarily bad inputs, but they need to be properly scaled in the investment committee process. And then there's the sort of biases that come from an investing process where you have a true value bent. It's very hard to look at a company that looks optically expensive and not appreciate, okay, this actually is a value. I mean, my example with this, which I always use, is Vulcan Materials because it has like a real estate element to it. It's never considered cheap. I think right now Vulcan's PE is probably in the 40s or 50s. No one would ever consider it a value stock. But when I looked at it, I came from a real estate perspective and said, okay, this is a company that owns 250,000 acres of gravel pits around the country, right near cities that will literally never be able to be built again. And if you were to back out, let's say, even a rough estimate of the value of those assets, the operating company of Vulcan trades in the low teens PE. But if you have a predilection of value or whatever your definition of value is, it would be easy to toss that aside without going a little bit deeper. Gotcha. Yeah, those are difficult assets to replace. That's for sure. So you also talked about building institutional knowledge. So what do you think are the best ways to build up that institutional knowledge? Well, I'm biased on this, but I think writing. I think everything gets put into a deck or graph or sometimes not even that. And I think there's tremendous value in just the narrative form and getting things down into a memo and something that continues to build over time. And now we have lots of tools and technology that can sort of help index and archive those. And sometimes, and I've talked to a few other investors that work on investment teams, sometimes it feels like it's for an audience of one, but really forcing yourself to get down into pros, your thesis and backing. So much time is spent on modeling and testing sensitivities 
one of the best lessons from Buffett is being able to really succinctly share a thesis in a way that resonates. And again, a lot of this comes with all values delivered in an unknowable future. No one can predict the future. But a big part of investing is building conviction. And I think that writing process of getting things down on paper, the organization it forces can help build that conviction. Absolutely. I know when I write about my own investing, it really helps me think for the future and it helps me really understand what happened, what went wrong. I can read things that I wrote earlier in the process. I can do a good postmortem to figure out what went wrong. I highly recommend writing. I agree with you. I think it's a great way to learn. A lot of individual investors understand this and either they have a blog or they do it just as part of their process. But it's interesting as you move up in this more institutional, that emphasis on writing, partially because of time constraints, partially because managing directors and principals don't have time to read a bunch of stuff, kind of get diminished slowly or the value of it gets diminished. But I think part of my aim is to find a way to center writing kind of around the investment process again that works in those environments. Yeah, absolutely. It's even good from just a personal perspective. If you write about your life in journal, I think that can help you approach future problems in a smarter way. It's funny, as much as I love writing, I've never been able to cultivate that journaling process because it's so hard for me not to write with an audience mindset. <laughs> so I knew I needed to develop a better writing practice. And I think my substack was I need to write for an audience. So as you can tell from my subject matter, it's all over the place. We don't really do industry deep dives or anything like that. I tell people I would have 25 tabs open on my computer. If I don't produce something out of this, I'm just wasting time. <laughs> For me, it helps me stay disciplined. So it's like on my own, I might not look at a company every single week, but if I know I have to get an article out on Saturday about a company, I'm going to make sure that I stick to that discipline every week. So that's one level where it helps, that's for sure. Yeah, the cadence of publishing can keep you disciplined for sure. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about private equity. So we talked a little bit about that, about small cap private equity. So one of the interesting people on that is Dan Rasmussen. So he's written a lot about how a lot of past private equity investing was simply, his opinion is it's levering up the small cap value premium. What do you think about that argument? Yes, quantitative data is unquestionable on this because very rarely does private equity improve operational efficiencies. You don't see a ton of margin expansion. Most of those gains have come from various forms of multiple expansion, which then you could then extend to the rate environment. I do think there's something to be said for in some of these small companies as they hit a growth inflection point. One, having professionalized management. I mean, one of the biggest challenges in public investing is this principal agent problem of who is management. I focus a lot on REITs, and it's one of the areas where because they're Maryland domiciled, there's very poor governance. So you have to really understand management and good management teams are, as we know, vanishingly rare. So I do think even if it doesn't necessarily show up in incredible margin expansions, that at least private equity management usually doesn't screw it up or do something that perhaps less experienced managers might. The multiple expansion could also come from being simply better marketers or of those assets once they're owned. The great example, if you take a Blackstone, is if a company is bought by Blackstone, their borrowing costs drop almost immediately as a result of that ownership. That's true value add that may or may not show up in margins or those traditional business metrics. To take a more nuanced view of it, I don't think any of those arguments are necessarily wrong about private equity, but I also don't know if from the investor perspective, you should 
be too concerned about, I guess you should be concerned about where those returns are coming from, but your goal is to make money and your goal is to make good risk-adjusted bets. It's not necessarily to say the best way to produce those <laughs> or to put value judges on the best way to produce this. Yeah. I think there's something to be said for, you know, hey, if this form of ownership lowers cost of capital, then that's something I might want exposure to. Gotcha. And that's a good point about the big players that they do add that cost of capital advantage to things. So you also mentioned small private equity. So what do you think about the prospects for small private equity? I've always thought what Bshort does is super interesting where he's buying, kind of focusing on smaller businesses. What do you think about small private equity? I think there's a lot of those businesses out there that would potentially benefit or that is one of those sort of inefficient areas of the market where there's not a ton of price discovery. The problem with any alternative asset class is that whether it's private credit, private equity, or real estate, they're very high transactions costs, and there's just lots of transactional friction. Perhaps one of the benefits we have of technology or the growing productivity it, it may provide is that some of those smaller companies that it just simply didn't make sense for investors to look at because of the transactional first. They weren't large enough. It takes as much effort to do a large deal as it does a small deal in many cases. And they were subscale from a transaction standpoint. And to the degree that they're moving into not being subscale from a transaction standpoint, I think that's really exciting. I am curious about if you look at, for example, permanent equities portfolio, it's really niche stuff. I almost hesitate to call them industry. <laughs> they are industries, but they're very, very small and very, very niche which I think is interesting, but it also means that there's obviously a constraint on how much capital can flow into that type of stuff. There's a giant cohort of people that believe that home service businesses, HVAC, electrical, and plumbing offer this great investment pathway. So I'm partially, you know, this is a bias. I grew up in a family that owned a home service company. I don't think they're particularly scalable. I think they're really hard. I think the labor cost is really hard. Those are not niche industries, but I'm also not sure that there's great returns in them. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, you do see a lot of that. I've thought about it, having recently had my air conditioning system replaced. <laughs> this is a great business, but I'm sure when you get into the weeds, it might not look as great as it looks on the surface. This may be our transition into financialization. When I look at my parents' business or I look at small business like that. A lot of the, the true margin has been taken away, death by a thousand cuts of various subscriptions and payroll services and insurance and fixed overhead of running a business has been very, very intermediated. And there's a lot of hands in the till for small business that is generating the transaction volume and adding the value. But there's a lot of people taking a swipe at that value now that maybe just it required more people prior to technology. There was just less hands in the pot taking from the profit pool that these companies create. Gotcha. Yeah. So that's good. Let's talk about financialization. So Financialization and the U.S. economy is increasingly exposed to the financial sector. The financial sector continues to grow as a percentage of GDP. So do you want to talk a little bit about why you think that happened? Everyone, I think, struggles with the definition of what financialization is, myself included. Mike Green with this, because he put it really succinctly, and I think it's absolutely true. Demand for debt securities in the absence of productive uses for that debt. Everyone wants to have yield and security and credit. So that creates a demand to create debt securities. Debt has to be created, but maybe there just aren't that as many outlets for productive uses for that debt, uses that can generate a positive spread on that debt. And so that's sort of what we've been experiencing. 
is that as companies have increasingly less capital intensive, they don't require as many sort of hard assets and hard things to invest in. They can be bits instead of atoms. The ability to reinvest has been more and more challenging. The numbers are large, but as a percentage of their free cash flow, the amount of money that a Google or an Apple or whoever is sort of reinvesting is much smaller than when it was railroads and hard asset companies. These are obviously advancements on some degree, but they do, in the broader sense, depress growth in the real economy. I think even some of our productivity metrics are probably skewed a little bit by the fact that on a per-employee basis, how much profit a Meta or Google can make relative to afford use our productivity metrics in a way that maybe that hides the true picture of, of declining productivity. As growth slows, people find new ways to sort of slice and dice and redistribute the little bit of growth there is. And I think that expresses itself in various forms of financialization and rent seeking. Gotcha. So do you think maybe it's just a fa- maybe it's just driven by globalization so the rest of the world might be developing into a more industrial economy while ours is in decline the world needs more capital and they're kind of turning to the financial system of the developed world to fuel that do you think maybe that's a factor I do but it's a little bit of a canard because you that view of the world requires always finding the next cheapest place to produce something and those views also that model of growth doesn't really fully account for the originally dominant countries. So we used to manufacture lots of things. What we can do is we can ship these nasty bits elsewhere. They can produce t-shirts and tennis shoes and this stuff. And what we'll do is we'll move up the value chain. We'll be knowledge workers. We'll be data workers. And we'll get really cheap t-shirts and tennis shoes, and we'll produce this high-value intellectual property. That has not really happened to the degree. It's happened to some degree. And Maybe the coastal gateway cities are beneficiaries of that, but most workers in the U.S. have not moved up the value chain. They've moved down the value chain. And while the products they can buy get cheaper, their own economic prospects have not changed particularly much. And then if you look to where we sent things, China, they it's debatable, but as they do have some form of ascendant middle class, now they're looking to send it to the next cheaper place. And it kind of requires us constantly finding the next cheaper place to make stuff. And it leaves the previously dominant country, I think, necessarily existential, but very difficult position of what does their economy look like. Gotcha. And where do you think that goes next? So there's a lot of talk about how we have been sending things overseas to less developed markets. Like you mentioned, they're looking for a place to ship this stuff. That place doesn't really exist. It seems like the next iteration of this will be the use of robotics and and bringing manufacturing back to the developed world. So how do you think that will affect financialization and where this value chain is? Yeah, I'm sure these ideas have been brewing for some time, but it really does feel like really in the past six to 12 months, there's been a renewed focus. And even the term industrial policy for the U.S. has been starting to be used more. And really even starting with things like the Trump administration's tariffs or the Green New Deal, And you can agree or disagree with the implementation or the express aims of those various policies, but I would argue they're at least directionally correct in terms of the state realizing that they play inseparable role from the economy, that industrial policy is needs to take seriously. We went through a long period, as you put it, sort of just 
globalization, we were just one global mass of GDP. Where stuff was made, where it was flowing was not, was at, totally at the hand of the market. And now states, especially the U.S., is realizing that they play a role in that. And there's more talk, at least, of what industrial policy might look like. So I don't know what the industries are, and I don't know how it expresses itself, but at least politically, it seems that the state has realized that they need to play a role, whether you call this protectionism or nearshoring or whatever, that the state has a role in protecting its economy. And it'll be interesting to see what policies and approaches come out of that conversation. Earlier, you were talking a little bit about how this has driven increased inequality. So do you think the trend of financialization is is one of the key causes of increased wealth and income inequality? I think it's certainly a cause, but I think there's a lot that goes into that. I don't think, let me say this, regardless of the causes of inequality, it certainly seems as though the current structure is not going to be equipped for addressing it. So I think you could go back in history and find a great many reasons that created the inequality, but it's clear that this highly financialized rent-seeking system we have now is certainly not going to be the best way to address closing that. If people have held on to sort of this Reaganite, that the invisible hand of the market, that people would, coal miners would learn to code and that people would move to higher wages and all these things that have not really actually taken place. And so maybe there's some slow realization that that's finally happening. I do think there is something that's been created in the way we've managed our U.S. economy, especially as rates dropped and the government created liquidity where there was this wedge and there's money creation and it gets kind of laundered through the hands of consumers back to corporate balance sheets. So things like buy now, pay later and various forms of stimulus, people essentially just finance or borrow their way through consumption. And so that money creation, it does pass through the hands of consumers, but it doesn't actually land on consumer balance sheets. It ultimately lands on corporate balance sheets. Technology, I think, has spared us from the more acute symptoms of this. I have the same iPhone as the Kardashians. We watch the same Netflix. We're not the same, but a lot of the sort of most prevalent parts of our lives don't look that different. Had it not been for that sort of broadly accessible consumer surplus of Uber and Netflix and things that were subsidized by VC or whatever, some of these signs inequality would have felt a lot more acute to people than they have, but maybe that's coming to an end. Gotcha. And what do you think the best uh, policy prescription is for growing inequality? Or it sounds like you might be in favor of redistribution or higher taxes. Where do you stand on that? I don't really have policy prescriptions for that. I do think that this idea of industrial policy and that the state is an economic actor is something that we've forgotten and that we'll remember again, just as we remembered it during the New Deal. There's tons of what I feel like is low-hanging fruit for the government to be an economic actor. We have infrastructure underinvestment and a variety of things where they can create incentives and alignment that creates more broadly shared growth. But I think we're just beginning to see the conversation shift the sort of the idea of the, the end of history, if we think of the end of the Cold War as the end of history, at least in terms of battle between free market capitalism and communism or collectivism that sort of foreclosed on how society would be organized. And now, following the great financial crisis, and I think COVID to some degree, we're now experiencing maybe an end to whatever those the preceding 30 years were into maybe a potentially new way that society organizes itself. But that could be also Pollyannish and overly hopeful. 
Maybe. So it sounds like instead of leaning more towards just redistribution and payments and taxes and things like that, you're leaning more towards government should act as a positive force to help the economy and to help things move along in building infrastructure, training, rather than just assuming the market will take care of everything. Am I correct in my reading yeah, of that? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. The government has a duty, I would say, that they've abdicated to create the conditions for growth. And they have not created those conditions. They've created the conditions for consumer surplus and lower prices, but that's a different thing. Okay. And in your research into financialization and the history of that, I think a key figure you've talked a lot about, Hyman Minsky. So do you want to talk a little bit about the work of Hyman Minsky? Well, I think Minsky is really the source of idea of the demand for debt and the absence of productive uses for that. That's the Minsky moment in the credit cycle where the realization that Debt has been created, but it's not producing real growth, becomes broadly obvious to everyone. But I think Minsky also had a lot of interesting ideas around intrinsic value. And that, to me, those may be his more important contributions was this idea that all value is delivered into an unknowable future. So we think about intrinsic value, but all finance is inherently speculative. The world could change tomorrow that could completely change your assumptions about a company, and that's often overlooked. Certainly in investing, as people say, well, this is when they think about value and they don't view finances sort of inherently speculative. I think Minsky had a very clear-eyed view of the role finance played in society. And his ideas now, obviously, as bank failures happen, you know, he sort of gets drugged back up every time there's a crisis. But ideas about how to prevent it or why it happens never truly get internalized. So what is his argument about why this happened? So if you want to summarize that quickly for the listeners. Private credit might be a good example now where there's a regulatory gap. Let's say, you know, bank lending has either been, or I shouldn't say overly regulated, but the regulations in banking make it so it's harder for them to lend. And so private credit arises. And what Minsky would say is, well, when this happens and this profit pool gets created, people can't help themselves but push it to unsustainable levels that the market system has really no feedback loop until the collapse that something's amiss here, that capital will flow into something essentially until it becomes unstable. That's core in most quotas, that stability causes instability. Minsky was certainly more prescriptive in terms of that policymakers could help smooth this ride. And I'm not necessarily sure I entirely agree with his prescriptions about how they can do that effectively. but he was right that capital will flow until it begins to build up this risk in the system that eventually breaks loose. And uh, what were some of his prescriptions? Well, he was certainly in the New Keynesian camp. And I think this is an interesting argument for now. I posted this the other day as we sort of look at what potentially might be a soft landing for the economy. I'm not predicting that, at least in the possibilities. If we look back at the savings and loan crisis, it took the government, it took the Fed, it took Treasury years to sort of clean up that mess. When the great financial crisis happened, that was like sort of six or eight months of chaos of various programs. When Silicon Valley Bank failed, pretty much the Fed had that stitched up within a weekend. And yes, there was a few more failures, but it didn't cause this broad panic or this giant contagion in the system. And so you have to at least consider that the Fed and policymakers are building up some sort of institutional knowledge that is actually smoothing the ride of the, the financial system and the economy. I'm not sure I entirely believe that, but I think it's you have to it'd be 
it would be foolish not to at least consider it as a possibility. And a lot of that stuff is what Minsky advocated for was that the government or the policymakers generally have a duty to sort of rein in some of the more speculative impulses of finance. Gotcha. Yeah, it does seem like SVP just came and went. Feds and regulators handled it effectively. Wouldn't Minsky say, though, that we're creating stability that's just going to lead to more instability in the long run? Sure. This is an interesting, you know, on the real estate market is the Fed or Treasury saying, telling banks, hey, work with borrowers. Probably has something to do with the growth of private assets is that at the end of the day, the asset owners are ultimately the same in these cases. And who is actually getting a bailout from this stuff and what are the true impacts of bankruptcy or where's the financial markets in terms of what qualifies as pain? You have largest asset managers handing back the keys on buildings, turning around and getting $100 million loans from those same banks the next day. I don't know what our cycles look like now and what a true cycle might look like with the Fed being as willing to intervene as they are. Yes, I think Mitski would say we are building up greater and greater sort of risk in the system. That's why I think I have a hard time organizing my thoughts on Mitski because it seems like sort of his prescriptions went sometimes maybe against what he was saying was the problem. Yeah, it's a confusing subject. (laughs) On one hand, like, I don't know the answer because on one hand you could say, well, we should have let SVB Bank fail. Okay. I don't know if that necessarily leads to good things for the system either. If you start to allow, it could cause a problem even worse, like when we allowed Lehman to fail. On the other hand, you could say that bailing out SVB and securing depositors above the FDIC limits, that creates a situation in the future where banks will just take more risks, knowing that there's no real long-term penalties for at least the agents that are involved in implementing those risky decisions. So I don't know what the answer is. Glad I don't have to (laughs) make these prescriptions myself. (laughs) I don't envy anyone on the Fed or the Treasury. Yeah, there are no easy answers to any of these things. So before we wrap up, like high level, how do you currently approach your personal investing and what's your approach to public and private markets with your own personal finances? Yeah, I think everyone who comes into goes through their Buffett-Graham phase. And for me, stuff never resonated very strongly with me. I think there's a lot of great lessons in it, but from an investing standpoint and from my own personal disposition, it did not speak to me. And then a few years ago, another investor pointed me in the direction of Marty Whitman of Third Avenue. And it was breath of fresh air and cold glass of water that I needed. This is exactly how I think about things. He was a value guy, wasn't he? He was a value guy, but it was a very different approach, would often criticize what he called the primacy of the income statement, and that investors are overly focused on flows. That's what he was talking about, sort of cash flow through the statement and traditional earnings, and that many companies' objective was not solely to create earnings, but to create corporate wealth. And there was a lot of ways to create corporate wealth that happened on the income statement and the balance sheet, various asset conversions, whether that be... M&A or refis or spinouts and all the sort of capital allocation decisions a company can make were just as important as trying to divine what flows would be. So he took a very net asset value approach to companies and wanted to make sure that companies were staying credit worthy and that creditworthiness worthiness would allow them to create corporate wealth in a variety of ways that weren't simply through the income state. And so that view very much speaks to sort of how I like to analyze companies. And my own portfolio takes on, in addition to the privates that I invest in, the publics tend to have an asset-heavier approach. I own a lot of REITs. 
And that's partially because of an understanding of the real estate market, but it's also partially an understanding or an affinity for this Whitman style approach of focusing on the balance sheet and, and trying to understand what net asset values are for companies and how they might be able to realize those net asset values for the benefits of shareholders. And so I don't think this particular approach maybe has the prettiest back test. But I do think for me personally as an investor, investing in companies when I believe that they're significantly below their net asset value and with some belief that they'll be hard catalysts if they'll close the gap to produce good returns is typically how I've approached my own investing. And again, that comes back down to conviction and knowing that you need to hold stuff for a long time to truly get the benefits and to hold stuff for a long time. It requires conviction. And the problem with conviction is you don't know if you have it until you need it. Well, that sounds like value investing to me. So yeah, maybe uh, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that you're not out of the Buffett Graham intellectual lineage there. I think it sounds pretty value oriented to me. Yes, it probably is value oriented. I think it may be like perhaps a less dogmatic view of value in terms of Vulcan's a good example where it does not hit your typical value metrics. It's not going to show up on a value screen, but viewed differently, it's very much a value company. Buffett says similar things when he's talking about how to properly value a company. You can't be dogmatic about, well, I want to pay this multiple. He's definitely more flexible with that approach, and a lot of successful value investors are as well. The twilight of his career coincided with the great financial crisis, and then Third Avenue had some challenges around succession, distressed debt, or high-yield debt funds that had some liquidity challenges. And I think they unfairly tarnished Whitman's reputation at the twilight of his career, but I think he would absolutely be mentioned in sort of the canon of the greats had it not been for just that poor timing. He does have a very novel view of valuation and how to invest. One of my favorite things about Whitman was his criticism of the disclosure explosion and gap. He felt that financial statements should be narrowly focused towards predators and that as things like EBITDA and adjusted EBITDA and vast variety of disclosures got added to financial statements that he felt like accountants and the people creating them were not truly qualified to make, that sort of the signal and the value of financial statements went down. And he was a big proponent of continuing to focus on gap and what was absolutely knowable versus some of these increasingly exotic metrics companies used to try to prove out their value. Interesting. Are there any good books to read more about more about him and about his approach and his thoughts? I started my Whitman journey with the aggressive conservative investor, and I think it's fantastic. If you read the reviews, the Graham and Dodd people think it repeatedly mischaracterizes their approach, which I think is probably fair. And Whitman's writing is sometimes criticized as being overly academic. I actually really liked it. I thought the way he wrote had sort of a charm to it, and it's very memorable. So I would start with Aggressive Conservative Investor. The first part of the book is about approach, and the second half of the book is case studies. There's certainly anachronistic case studies. We're talking about companies like Union Carbide and things like that that don't exist as much. Whitman was very good, too, and something I think I've also incorporated into my own investing process is around being security agnostic and saying, where is the best place in the capital stack to be? Really depends on the situation and depends on the company that you can't just say, well, I'm they're all just varying claims on cash flows. And so sometimes you want to be equity. Sometimes you want to be in the capital stack and to truly look at things with a sort of security agnostic view. Interesting. I'll definitely be reading that. I love the case studies aspect of it. I love investing books with actual war stories from investors of 
why they did things, how it turned out. I love reading about that. So definitely adding that to my list. Yeah, a lot of those really are about understanding capital structure, which I think whether you're across the private and public landscape is something that maybe sometimes doesn't get enough focus is how is this company financed or how is this opportunity financed? And are there risks and opportunities inherent within simply how a company is financed versus what maybe necessarily their future earnings growth or potential is? Very cool. So what are the best ways to reach you, to learn about you? So as you mentioned, you can find me on Twitter. My DMs are open at r100h. I have a Gmail address listed on my Substack, which is lewisenterprises.blog now, which is a little bit easier. I'll quickly share, because it always comes up, of like where the Richard Gere thing comes from. <laughs> That's my avatar. <laughs> yeah, that is your avatar, his character from yeah, Pretty Woman. Lewis Enterprises, yes, is a reference to Pretty Woman, which is a fantastic movie. It's a lot of fun. It's a classic rom from the 80s. But in the movie, Richard Gere's character, Ed Lewis, is doing a hostile takeover of Morse Industries, which is a shipbuilder. But he's really only taking over the shipbuilder because they own lots of L.A. Long Beach industrial lands. In the movie, Richard Gere is doing a classic, some of the part, hostile takeover. And so when I watched the movie for the first time, of course, I'm sure my girlfriend or whatever time was like really honed in on this relationship between Julia Roberts and Richard Gere. And I'm like wanting to keep going back to understanding the Morse industry. (laughs) real estate industrial play. So that's kind of an overlooked part of the movie that there is like sort of a business deal embedded in the movie that very much speaks to the type of stuff I like to look for. Yeah, it's a good movie. It really communicates that moment in time because, you know, you're dealing with the tail end of the Raiders, the 80s. And then there's even a lot of references to Japanese bubble that was going on at the time. So oh, that's right. There is. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, and it is a quintessential rom-com. It's funny, though, because this, the original script was actually extremely dark where Julia Roberts is addicted to drugs and the movie's called $3,000 and he kind of tosses her to the side after at the end of the week. The original was much darker, <laughs> but Disney was able to turn it into, turn that dark script into the quintessential rom-com. In a moment of art imitating reality, when Richard Gere asked Julia Roberts where she's from, she says she's from Milledgeville, Georgia. And the last time I watched it, I had just committed to a real estate investment in Milledgeville, Georgia. I couldn't believe it. No one knows Milledgeville. I couldn't believe that it was referenced in the movie. Yeah, I'm sure someone involved in the production probably lived there or was familiar <laughs> with the place. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for coming on today. I think this has been a really enjoyable conversation and thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thanks. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.